Menu Feed, a weekly podcast from Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Menu Editor for both brands. Joining me on the podcast is Philippe Massoud, chef owner of A Lily, a Lebanese fine dining restaurant with locations in New York City and Washington, D.C. Philippe opened the New York City restaurant 15 years ago when most Americans thought Middle Eastern food was all about hummus and shawarma served from storefronts. Philippe grew up in Lebanon, spending a lot of time in his family's hotel and learning hospitality and cooking from the best. He was forced to leave his country during the Civil War, arriving in the U.S. with a desire to pursue his culinary passion. At Alili, which translates to Tell Me, He showcases many of his family's recipes on the menu. Listen as Philippe describes his journey from refugee to restaurateur, how Alili's progressive design and elevated menu has changed the perception of what a Lebanese restaurant can be, and his plans to expand Alili to more locations. Welcome, Philippe. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, let's begin by you telling me a little bit about your journey that began in Lebanon and brought you to the U.S. Um, where did you land and what year was that? And what was well, that? Um, so I was born into a family that's been in the hospitality business since the 1900s. Uh, we were uh, one of the families, if you want, that uh, the, the Stephen Stars or the uh, Danny Myers of Beirut oh, at the cool. time. Uh, we... Uh, my grandfather and his brothers, uh, who were the sons of a stonemason, had decided that uh, stonemasonry was too backbreaking and decided uh, to dive into the food business. And they uh, worked as cooks and eventually opened the butcher shop. Then they opened a restaurant um, that was called Masoud Brothers, which is our family last name in mm-hmm. downtown Beirut in which they were the first to bring in uh, European pastries to the Levant and to Lebanon uh, and uh, taught the Lebanese how to do viennoiserie. And uh, they had brought Austrian pastry chefs to teach the Lebanese how to do um, uh, all the good stuff. So they had a chocolatier, which is basically a chocolate store, a cremier, ice cream, uh, pâtissier, and they had the restaurant and full-on catering. So uh, it was a pretty big operation, and they had done very well. And, and to, I'm going to skip a couple of, of <laughs> steps. My grandfather eventually converted his uh, summer home in the mountains of Lebanon into a small hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother you know, sewed all the bed sheets and all the curtains with her sewing machine. And, and uh, they had a lot of... Uh, uh, royalty from the Gulf uh, stay there because the mountains of Lebanon have a beautiful climate. And when you're escaping the desert heat, it was as if you were, you know, uh, in a totally different continent and a different country uh, because, uh, you know, we have 17 microclimates in Lebanon and um, and and basically people would go there uh, to, to spend time in the summer and or in the fall. Um, subsequently, we ended up being in the hotel business. Uh, we built a hotel called the Coral Beach Hotel, uh, which opened in 1964. It was a very avant-garde hotel. It had a nightclub that was designed by the team that had done Trader Vicks in London. Oh, so right. we had uh, 
all the poo-poo platters and Mai Tais and zombies and Jamaicas, you know, all those amazing drinks with the long straws, very Jim, James Bondish. <laughs> at the time, there were no DJs. There was a live band, uh, and we had uh, Italian, French uh, singing. And we had a restaurant in the hotel that was called Le Restaurant du Cap, where uh, we had brought in French chefs to teach our Lebanese chefs uh, uh, the excellence of French cuisine. So, you know, the classic high-end French staples. So I was born in the se- uh, early 70s and um, uh, on a weekend uh, in uh, April of 1975, we were coming back home from our mountain home and uh, our home was right across from the Holiday Inn in downtown Beirut, uh, where the war the civil war broke out. Uh, it was called oh. the war of the hotels. And uh, we couldn't go back home. So we said, okay, let's go to the hotel. And then as soon as things quiet down, we'll go home. And we never went home. Wow. Uh, so we ended up being becoming refugees in our hotel. The hotel was the headquarters of the internet. We brought in the International Red Cross as a client and they, were, they headquartered themselves at the hotel. And, and that pretty much saved our lives uh, at the time because, you know, at the time Beirut was very violent and people were being killed just because they were Muslim or Christian, Mm. depending on which side of the city they lived in. And we lived on the Muslim side and we were Christians. So living in that hotel, uh, if you want, uh, was a blessing uh, and pretty much the priming for my career. I had no clue I was going to end up doing what I was doing. Uh, Mm. But I spent my time in the kitchen, in the maintenance department, and at the reception. And that's where really I got my bug to the dismay of my father because he did not want me to be in the business. <laughs> he knew how backbreaking it was, and he was a very, very hard worker. You know, my dad used to go to work at seven and come back home at nine or ten. Um, and I think he wanted a better life for his children, so he, he you know, he would kick me out of the kitchen and or the reception every opportunity he had. And I eventually had developed a secret language with the staff of the hotel that if my father was on his way, that they would forewarn me so that I could escape before getting, you know, screamed at um, by my father. So what happened is that eventually we moved to an apartment because we couldn't live in the hotel all of our lives. And we moved to an apartment. uh, I was uh, 11 years old Mm -hmm. and my mom takes me food shopping for the first time. So we go to a supermarket. I had no clue what a supermarket was because I had been living in a hotel. So I, you know, I, we had the dry storage and the warehouse, you know, where we, we kept the food. I, you know, and of course I knew every dish and, you know, I, I would go to the patisserie and steal tempered chocolate and eat all the petit fours and get screamed at because they were for a cocktail party. But I didn't know they were for a cocktail party. So we go to, we go food shopping and uh, we start, you know, cooking at home. And I'm like, this is not like the same food as the hotel. Like, what the hell is this? And and my mom, you know, is like buying me, buying me Duncan Hines, uh, you know, boxed cakes and, and what have you. And and while I enjoyed the chocolate frostings and all that, it didn't taste like the pound cakes that we were doing with raisins or the Renda Sava that we were doing at the Coral Beach or the Succès or the Tart or whatever. Mm. So I was like, I'm not having any of this. I pick up the phone and I call the chef of the hotel and I'm like, I need the recipe because I need to make this because I miss eating it. So that's how I started cooking. I started in pastries. Um, mm. 
so eventually the situation in Beirut gets a lot worse and my parents send my sister and my brother out of the country and I'm kind of the last one to stay there. And in 1985, uh, in the spring of 1985, while we were driving back, my mom and I in the car, we get pulled over by a roadblock and um, it was a Hezbollah roadblock. Mm. And uh, one of the guys manning the roadblock was a student with me in school. So my mom was like, wait a second, you're telling me that you're going to school with a guy that is in Hezbollah? I said, and, and he's young, he's your age? And I said, yes. She's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. you know. And I think the deal was sealed in her head. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that I needed to get out because you know it was not good that I was you know surrounded by individuals like that. Right. Uh, so so my mom tells me, oh, you know, there's an uncle of yours that lives in Colorado. Uh, you've never met him. Maybe it would be great for you to go visit your brother in Colorado and and get to know your uncle there and and your aunt uh, who left in this uh, in the late seventies is in New York. Why don't you go discover America and see how you like it? And so I came, I went to Colorado, you know, drove with my brother who had just bought a car, Bryce Canyon, Grand Canyon, and discovered all the West, you know, and, and it was majestic. It was beautiful. And then I came back to Westchester County, to Scarsdale, where my aunt uh, lived. And my parents called me and they said, oh, by the way, you, can, you cannot come back home. Wow. So I, was four, I was 14 years old. Yeah. And... At the time, you know, my aunt used to cook um, uh, to the best of her abilities, the way she remembered the food. And um, and I was a bit of a pain because, you know, I kept on telling her, well, this doesn't taste like it should. It doesn't taste like it tasted at the Coral Beach, blah, blah, blah. And, she, and then one day she told me, listen, you know, if you don't like my food, then why don't you cook yourself or stop complaining, you know? <laughs> so uh, I would, you know, taste and give her give her some feedback, but I also became an avid watcher of public broadcasting systems and mm-hmm. watching Julia Childs, uh, Jacques Pépin, Yang uh, uh, Ken Cook, I think that was his name. Right. Um, and and I started cooking, you know, the savory stuff and having fun with it. And the first kind of wow moment was when I cooked with my aunt, uh, the Julia Childs' leg of lamb. Mm. Uh, and and when I realized how amazing it was and all that, you know, I I kept on going and 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 everything I did in regards to food was because I missed it and because I missed the food that I ate that I was brought up on and that was my that was a hobby right that was not like oh I want to become a chef and 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 all that. I know how to cook. And, you know, I used to cook all the time for my friends when we went out. Uh, when we came back from clubbing, I was the guy that cooked the after-hour meal and so on and so forth. Were you in uh, school at this time? or you? I, I, I was accepted by Scarsdale High School as a, a student refugee, and the school board welcomed me. Um, and, 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 and to be honest with you, had I not become a refugee in the U.S., I would probably be dead uh, in Lebanon, you know, because... Lebanon was uh, eventually occupied by the Syrian army. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom, who was a refugee from Aleppo, Syria, in Lebanon, 
uh, because uh, her family would not play ball with the Assad regime, uh, had her own issues with the regime, and I certainly had a lot of issues with the regime. And and I subsequently uh, got you know arrested, but that's a, by the Syrians and and beaten. They they beat the, the the living daylights out of me because they thought I was an American and and what have you. Long story short, the second year that I was here, uh, 1986, my father was killed. And that was, you know, a devastating thing to happen for a 15-year-old who's just, you know, creating that man-to-man bond with his father. Right. Um, And so what happened is that every summer I would go back to Lebanon and every Christmas I would go back to Lebanon and help my mother with my brother run the hotel. Mm and I, I I took a very active role in that. I used to taste all the food with the chefs and and you know give pointers based on you know how I thought the food should be and and what have you. And 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 you have to realize I was a young adult already. You know I I was the, an old man in a young man's body at right. a very young age. Keeping in mind that I was driving a car when I was eleven years old in Beirut, right? So so. Uh, we did that, and as a matter of fact, it was the two best years of the hotel. And and for the first time in its history, the hotel had uh, made money uh, uh, because we went full on on the food and beverage program at the hotel, mm-hmm. and we really expanded it and what have you. Uh, I applied to Cornell University uh, in the hope that I was going to go back and, and help run the family business. Uh, mm-hmm. And because I thought I could expand it and grow it and use, you know, all the knowledge that I would acquire at Cornell to benefit the brand. And my second semester at Cornell in March of 1988, I was called and I was told that the hotel had been sold because pretty much our lives were still under threat. Mm. And because my mom was visited by, you know, uh, army intelligence that said, listen, your sons are not safe. The people that did harm to your husband want to do harm to you and your kids. So we kind of sold it for nothing and we ran away and we moved out of of Beirut and moved to the Christian side. Mm -hmm. So at that time, you know, having lost my father in 86, losing the hotel, which was my second father, if you'd like, because the hotel represented everything to me. I was completely rudderless and lost and, and, and did not know what I was going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a Lebanese restaurant on campus that was called Aladdin's. And I would go eat there and the food was very Americanized. You know, it was like, okay, the Americans don't know the difference. So let's give them the hummus we can and let's do whatever, you know. And I would go argue with the chef who was a, who was a Lebanese, who was not a chef, who was the general contractor that had built the place that ended up working <laughs> as a chef. And his name was Nadim. And I would argue with him. I'm like, listen, this is not hummus. Like, you can't, you, it's wrong for you. It's like reprehensible that you're serving this because you should not get away with this and you should not be serving. It's like, oh, but the Americans, they don't know the difference. And I'm like, but, but this is exactly wrong. And, and you're propagating the wrong flavors, the wrong textures, and you're educating people to eat the food incorrectly. And, and I tried at the time to join that restaurant company, you know, because I thought, okay, I'm going to help them fix the food and do it better and what have you. All along, in my first and food and beverage class, I discovered the recipe card. Mm. And when I discovered the recipe card, it was like the whole world opened up in front of me because I realized that I could calibrate, tune, and tweak every recipe that I had already acquired 
to to my tastings, to my textures, to what I thought made sense. And this is how I started. One recipe at a time, many, 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 many failures because I had nobody teaching me. It's not like mm. I, I, I was the, you know, my father cooked at home. My grandfather was an amazing cook. Um, I ate this amazing food, but I, I did not know the technique. So I started building my my recipe database based with the, you know, with the rest standardized recipe card, which I loved because it allowed me to approach the food from a mathematical point of view. Mm-hmm. Sense that, okay, well, if I put 10% less allspice, what's going to happen? If I do this, if I do that. So I started doing version one, version two. And, and by the way, I still do this till today at the age of 52. Um, Good and, yeah. <laughs> and then that's when I realized that, okay, what I was going to do is I was going to bring to America the cuisine and serve it the way it ought to be served because I think it tastes better. And mm-hmm. I think once people taste it, they're going to realize that this is the way it ought to be, not the way it's been represented so far. And that's how I went about it. Now, meanwhile, while I was in college, I ended up doing internships in hotels in Spain, in mm-hmm. Andalusia. I worked, uh, you know, I did stages for like two, three months in the in the kitchen of a hotel called the Don Carlos Hotel in in Marbella, and and that was, you know, and and back then everybody wore moccasins in the kitchen. Don't ask me why. Mm-hmm. Some people had clogs, but and you know, I remember my feet being destroyed, you know, from oh, wow. standing around and. Uh, but I was eight, you know, I was eighteen, yeah, eighteen years old, so it was okay. The body could take the beating at the time. But uh, what happened is that I said, okay, well, if I'm going to open a Lebanese restaurant, I need to validate everything that I know, and I need to validate my technique, and I need to stage and learn. Mm-hmm. So because my grandfather and my father were had such a big impact on the industry, I contacted some of the top Lebanese restaurants of the time, uh, two in Lebanon and, and two in France, Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I'm the son of so-and-so. Would you allow me to come and trail and and and, and film in your kitchen and, and taste the food? They said, absolutely. So everybody opened up their doors in a very, you know, brotherly, uh, fraternity-like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your, your, your ancestors helped us. We're going to help you. It's kind of, kind of m- magic, if you want. And I realized that, yeah, my food was on point, uh, that, you know, I wasn't far off. I calibrated a couple of things. Then I went to Paris and I did a stage there of three months uh, in two restaurants. One was called Noura. Uh, Noura is the biggest kind of Lebanese success story outside of Lebanon in regards to a multitude of restaurants. And they're very strong in the French market. They have some stores in London as well. Mm-hmm. And that taught me... Uh, the commissary, the production, and 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 what I view, you know. Uh, and then I went to a place called D1, and in D1, I was I became the apprentice of uh, one of Lebanon's top uh, pastry chefs in regards to Lebanese pastries. Mm-hmm. And there I learned how to do baklava, kanafe, and all the Lebanese pastries and all that. Uh, all along. This journey, I still had access to uh, the executive chef of our hotel, who was one of the top chefs, if not the top chef in Lebanon, who had done, who ended up doing stages at Le Nôtre and Maxime and and all and Tour d'Argent and all that. 
and and I, a lot of places. And anytime I had a, a question, I would say, "Hey, listen, I'm hitting this roadblock." He would give me pointers, and then I would figure out the rest on my own. Um, and he eventually also shared the recipes that my family had that mm -hmm. I did not have, you know, because we had sold everything. Um, so I ended up by, you know, inheriting a, a nice uh, batch of recipes. I eventually moved to Washington, D.C. I helped Capital Restaurant Concepts, which was one of the biggest players in the market at the time, uh, to develop a concept called Naila, which is my sister's name Ooh. and uh, the name of the daughter of one of the investors. Um, I opened that place in Georgetown, uh, and everybody thought that we were going to fail because... You know, four restaurants had failed in that location. And they're like, why are you going to succeed? Like, and, and this has never been done with this food. And obviously, I wasn't the chef there. I was a concept director. I mm -hmm. was very involved with the food. It wasn't my restaurant. So there were limits to how much I could do. But long story short, it was one of the first kind of uh, modern, up-to-date Lebanese restaurant uh, to succeed uh outside of Lebanon and in the DC market. Right. Is, uh, was Lebanese food kind of foreign to Americans at that point? No, there was Lebanese food, but it had always been presented in a very kitschy ethnic way. And 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 what I did with Ilili is in essence, I'm a New York restaurant that is created by New Yorkers, because I consider myself a New Yorker, mm -hmm. that happens to serve Lebanese cuisine. And I flipped the pyramid on its head because I wanted my staff and my customers to be New Yorkers. And the fact that Lebanese customers would come would be an endorsement, but mm -hmm. not the prerequisite of success. Right, and And this is how we were able to create this brand uh, because otherwise the brand would not succeed. If I was going to be reliant on people of Lebanese origins to be my customers, there was no way I was going to ever succeed. And and I didn't want it to be like a tourist office for Lebanon either. You know, uh, I wanted it to be avant-gardiste. I wanted it to be a progressive, uh, out, out, out of the box. And this is why you don't see any of like the kitschy stuff where, you know, the 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 stone wall that has, you know, uh, or, you know, a plug that has the cedar or whatever. Mm. The objective was not to do that. Not that there is anything wrong with it. And, and, and the Lebanese restaurants that you had in the market were also a little uh, Americanized in regards to the menu. You know, while they started with good intentions, as they grew, they... There was some corner cutting, unfortunately. Right. And a lot of them were really like, you know, mid they were mid-level or yes. Past yes. casual. They weren't really correct, correct. Nothing was trying to elevate. And, right. and my my mission was to say, well, hold on. This is a very complex cuisine. The amount of labor and craft and effort that goes into producing this cuisine is bar none. Huh? This is not like making a sauce. Uh, searing a piece of meat and just pouring it on a plate. This is picking parsley leaves, peeling aubergines. And mm. I mean, there's a lot of manual work in this cuisine. It's labor intensive, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to make a big 
statement, and this is why we did a 10,000 square foot restaurant in the flat iron district, you know, back in November of 2007. And mind you, you know, the press was not very kind to me. I, I got, you know, butchered because people were accusing me of being a lunatic uh, <laughs> as to why, why I would open a 10,000 square foot restaurant serving Lebanese cuisine in such a, at such a level when nobody has done that and, and we don't believe it should be there, kind of. Mm-hmm. How did you get investors, you know, behind you, or how did you get the, you know, financing? To- so, so because of my success in DC, and because mm-hmm. a lot of my investors in New York used to come to DC on weekends to eat in the restaurant in DC, and because of the fact that Lebanon is such a small country, and everybody knew that I was the son of so and so, and it's like imagine Danny Meyer's kid goes and says. <laughs> You know, I, I want to open a restaurant. Or will you will you back me? Kind of, and, and and I'm using that just to give you a metaphorical understanding of the background and the heritage, and 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 I was able to present. You know, I made I made my case. Mm-hmm. I, I was I had I was minus. $600,000 when I opened because I had to put money and I had to borrow money to put in my own money into the right. deal to prove that I had skin in the game. And and it was, you know, it was unimaginable pressure. You know, I owed the investors lots of money. I owed people that had allowed me to borrow money. And, and, and in retrospect, you know, nobody should open a restaurant with that much pressure on their shoulders <laughs> because... Just opening and running the restaurant is enough pressure as it is. Right. And, and you know, if, if we were to do a podcast on leadership, I would tell you all the things that need to be avoided. Um, but I was, you know, I, I was very unforgiving uh, when mistakes happened because I felt that every mistake was going to jeopardize the financial position of the restaurant. Right. And therefore, I was running the place like, a, you know, a bit of a dictator. But... But I treated everybody like family and and I, you know, and in essence, you know, when I opened New York, it was me and 80 Americans. I was the only Lebanese, you know. Did you take some of the um, childhood dishes that you grew up with at the hotel or some of them still on the menu or? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it took a while to to roll them, roll them into the menu. So initially we started with a menu that was eclectic that was fun you know we had the kafta with foie gras because we wanted to play with that we had the tuna kebab and things like that um that went well but i i did realize that eventually uh the market wanted us to do what we do best which is you know top-notch lebanese cuisine where which is 60 percent of our menu and for 60 to 70 and then the 40 to 30 percent is kind of an extrapolation of the Levantine cuisine and the Southern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least the 60 and 70% had to be equal, if not better than what you could get in Beirut. And and that's how we went about it. Um, and that's why we've been here for 16 years. And also the design is very um, upscale and modern looking. I mean, you wouldn't know you were walking into a Lebanese restaurant. Exactly. And that was done on purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. So all the materials are inspired by Lebanon. You know, uh, for New York is all about cedar wood, 
copper, you know, for the, the period and then the, the Phoenician heritage, if you'd like. The lattices of the wood structure that we have were inspired by the in, inside of a boat. And as you know, the Phoenicians were the first seafarers or mm. were the most, pro you know, they were renowned seafarers. Uh, and the empire, the Phoenician Empire expanded because of, of their master mastering of the sea and sailing. Um, so we, we got inspired by that, and that's how we decided to 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 put this big wooden box in there. Yeah, it's very striking for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then two years ago, you opened a second location in Washington D.C. So is that similar in menu and design? So or? D.C. is a is a progression, if you want. It's an evolution of New York. The menu is a bit smaller. It's a smaller uh, space. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it is a smaller menu, which allows us to be a bit more innovative and, and change things uh, more regularly. So, you know, uh, and DC represents the direction we're going in. We're actually going to be working on re renovating New York as well. Oh. Um, and DC we built during COVID, uh, which is an experience I don't want to go through again. And you've gone through a lot of stress opening restaurants. It's oh, I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> You know, between the financial crisis of right. 2008, 2009, Hurricane Sandy, the riots, oh, yeah. uh, COVID, uh, I had some health issues. I mean, you, I've been through the ringer, you know, wow. and nothing phases me anymore. But but we put our, we poured our heart and soul uh, into the design of DC. And, and you know, if, in a way, had, had we not all gotten so dark and depressed from COVID, I don't know that we would have produced the restaurant that we produced in DC because it was the anti uh, antithesis of COVID, if you want. We wanted it to be a jovial, celebrative, festive space, and that's what we designed. And and mm -hmm. and and the space really touches you the moment you walk in. It's it's very uplifting. It's it's very fun, and it has very elegant. Uh, and delicate touches of design here and there. And that's how we approach that one. Uh, I have a great team there. Um, the general manager uh, in DC uh, used to, him and I used to work together at Naila. And and um, and my chef, uh, Chef Satinder, and the general manager is Rashid. They're doing a great, great job. Um, Satinder is of Indian origins. So uh, we, we love to talk food and, and, and try to inject some of both cultures whenever we can into the food. So tell me about some of the menu items that, you know, are your favorites or that have become signatures or really best sellers. Listen, I mean, the lamb shank is a must. And by the way, that lamb shank is an extrapolation of Julia's child's leg of lamb, oh, uh, cool. just so that we're in for the sake of transparency, uh, because I loved it so much and I, I steered it in, in a totally different direction. Um, and that is really the kind of celebrative dish uh, where there's a lot of flavors, there's complexity. We have cardamom, cinnamon, allspice, mm -hmm. nutmeg. Uh, um, and of course, you know, there's, uh, you know, the delicious aromas of it, a very well done uh, lamb stock and lamb mm -hmm. jus. Um, the next one, which is a great surprise because people don't expect is, is our roasted chicken. Mm. The roasted chicken is made is cooked to order, so it's cooked from raw to order, and therefore mm. it will be the juiciest cut of meat you've ever eaten in your life. Uh, that is beautifully roasted, that has the nice char, 
Um, and that that's my second kind of go-to. In regards to the Meza, the steak tartare, the kibinaye is definitely a big winner for mm-hmm. me. There's no way I go a week without having a, a dish of hummus or baba ganoush. You know, those right. are, you know, if you want them in their authentic form, I highly recommend it. So, mm-hmm. And you have a lot of shareables, which was kind of groundbreaking at the time. As absolutely. Well. Absolutely. You know, I told people it's Thanksgiving every night in our <laughs> restaurant. That's so you know, cool. and then and, and that's the beauty of eating this food. You know, it's a taste. I mean, think of it as a tasting menu. The only difference is that you can order the whole tasting one one item at a time. Right. Um, and, and and I'm so happy that the cuisine has finally caught on. And now, you know, there's there's like a zillion Levantine, Israeli, Lebanese, Palestinian, Jordanian, Syrian restaurant, you know, and I think. When people saw that Ilili succeeded the way it did, it kind of encouraged a lot of a lot more people to get into the to the market. Definitely. Well, to wrap up, um, what do you think is next? Will you be opening more like um, you know spaces like the one in Washington D.C.? Uh, we are in the midst of very advanced negotiations in Miami, and uh, Miami will be a seafood extrapolation of Ilili. Um, think of it as Ilili of the Sea or Ilili del Mar. And uh, I'm very, very excited because it's going to force me to get out of my comfort zone and, and, and really go do some serious R&D. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Um, and then after Miami, we're looking at another location for New York and another location in the D.C. market. Uh, we're in talks, uh, limited talks with Los Angeles and Chicago as well. Thanks so much, Philippe. The story of your journey and success is truly inspiring. You can download this episode of Menu Feed and past podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Kobe. Mm-hmm.